friend. He tentatively approaches the deceased wife and asks whether he can say a word. The widow nods. The man clears his throat and says, plethora. The widow smiles appreciatively. Thank you, she says. That means a lot. Another man comes up and says, mind if I say a word too? And she says, please do. The man clears his throat and says, bargain. And the widow replies, thanks. That means a great deal. Another man comes up and asks for the same privilege. The widow thanks him, saying, that would be very nice. So the man clears his throat and says, earth. And the widow replies, thank you. That means the world. Another man comes up, asks if he could say a couple of words. And the widow thanks him, saying, that would be very nice. And the man clears his throat and says, being alive. And the widow replies, thank you. He would have liked that. (laughs) Another man approaches the widow and says, "I'm uh, I'm truly sorry for your loss. He was a great and dear man. And the widow replies, I don't think you understand what's happening here. Brothers and sisters, if I may suggest today, many people around the world don't know what's happening here. Even some gathered in churches today don't know. We dress up, we gather, we greet, we sing, we listen to a preacher go on and on and on and on. Why? What are we really here for? What are we really doing here? You heard the answer earlier in a reading from Ephesians. We are here to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you hear that? We are here to make known the wisdom of God, to preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so that is what we do today. We preach Christ crucified because in that we see the very wisdom of God. And so we're going to look here in Luke, and we're going to go through a little bit of this in Luke chapter 23, if you would turn there in your Bibles Luke chapter 23, to look at this time in history. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you for this beautiful day. Lord, for the moisture on the ground, for the flowers coming up, for the trees with buds on their stems. Lord, you are faithful today, and you are faithful every day. And so we thank you, and we praise you. Holy Spirit, be at work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Luke chapter 23, we see 
leading up to this moment that according to eyewitness testimony, after being tried and condemned, Jesus was beaten. A crown of thorns was placed onto his head, pressing in to his skin. There was a a robe put on him that was later torn off from him. And then he was taken up to Golgotha, the hill where he would be crucified. But if you were to read this, you know that he didn't go there alone. The crowds followed him. Some wanted to see the spectacle of a public execution. Some wanted to see this false Messiah, the carpenter's son, meet justice. Some were loved ones, blending in with the crowd, unwilling to run away from Jesus, but hoping that they wouldn't meet the same fate. His mother was there. At least one of his disciples was there. Maybe his half-brothers were there. The Romans were there. They controlled the procession. Centurions trained at the art of killing. They offered crowd control in case the crowd got out of hand. They offered security in case the prisoners tried to run, which would have been hard after the beatings. And they offered a reminder of who really held the power in Israel, the Roman government. And as they led Jesus to the top of the hill, they led two criminals along with him. The Gospel of Matthew says that they were robbers. Luke just calls them criminals. And we read about them in Luke 23, beginning in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, There they crucified him (coughs) and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So now we see Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who Colossians tells us upholds the universe by the power of his word. He is not on a throne in glory with his faithful followers on the right and the left. No, he is on a cross with criminals on the right and the left. The weight of his body hanging from the nails, making it harder and harder to breathe. You see, crucifixion was an old custom at this point. The Romans didn't invent it, but they perfected it. You see, the way it would happen is is you would come to the wood and they would either nail through your hands or they would nail through your wrists. Either one of those would actually work. And, And so a lot of the weight of your body was there. And then what you see here is that on the post, they would nail through the bone in your heel on either side so that the weight of your body was on your hands And the weight itself made it hard to breathe, your lungs filling with blood. And so then you had to push up on that nail in your heels in order to gasp a breath. Just to gasp a breath. If you wanted to speak, you had to take a moment to pull yourself up and push on your heels 
gasp enough breath to speak. It is in these moments when breath is hard to come by that words become so very precious. Every breath, every word has to be fought for. You have to make everyone count. And we see what words come from the heart of Jesus. Look in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, struggling for breath, doesn't curse the ones who put him there. He asks the Father to forgive them. Did the soldiers hear it? (coughs) Do they understand the significance of what has just happened? Does the crowd gasp in awe as the Lord of the universe (coughs) begs for pardon for their crimes against him? They miss it. Just as we so often miss it, in fact, Luke records that the soldiers and the crowd made fun of him. Let's finish reading some of that. (coughs) After Jesus, struggling for breath, says these words, it says this, and they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. You see, the soldiers don't even wait for Jesus to die. Neither do the people. They start gambling to see who gets his stuff. The people don't mourn. They mock him, crying out, save yourself. The soldiers start to get in on it too, saying, save yourself, O king of the Jews. And above Jesus' head is a sign with his crime, king of the Jews. Many of the people there are religious skeptics, unconvinced by the miracles, by the teaching, by the presence of God among them. The Romans there are religious skeptics of a different sort. These centurions are numbed by death. They are killers by trade, and they will kill this man. So they may as well have a little fun with it. But then there is one skeptic of the worst kind, a criminal on a cross next to Jesus who fights for breath enough to mock him along with the crowd. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. (coughs) Matthew tells us that it was both Criminals who began by mocking Jesus. Now think about this. This man is in the same position as Jesus. 
nails through his hands, nails through his heels, fighting for his breath. And how does he use it? He is angry. He is hurting. And he is using the last breath in his lungs to curse the one who is paying for his sins at that very moment. Save yourself and us, he says. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. The morning star, the Lord of creation, the lion of Judah hanging on a cross and all around mock him. They don't see it. They don't understand what he is doing for them right then and there. And he could. He could come down off of that cross. But then our sins wouldn't be paid for. He could curse those who cursed him. But then they wouldn't see his heart. He could call upon his angels to sweep through with a mighty wind and sword, but then death would not be defeated. And so they all miss it, as we so often do, while Jesus, the only innocent man to walk this earth, hangs on a cross for them. They miss it. But somewhere along the lines, with one of the criminals, something changed. And then another voice, fighting for breath, comes from the other side of the cross. He had started off mocking Jesus, but something changed. And by now, he must have had to fight hard for his words. Maybe even harder so that the man on the other side could hear him. And he pushes up on the nail in his feet and he rebukes the other criminal saying in verse 40, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong and then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What do you suppose this man did to deserve his punishment? Matthew says he's a robber. What did he steal to deserve death? Food? Money? Information? Did he betray his people? His family? Who was there to watch him die? Did they come to mock him too because of his great crimes? We aren't told, probably because then we would compare our sin to his. And we would do what I would do and look at him and say, well, I'm not as bad as he is. Or maybe, maybe we'd look at him and say, you know what? I've done worse than that, so how could I ever be forgiven? I love uh, what a preacher named Charles Spurgeon famously said. He said, if any man thinks ill of you, Do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than you think yourself to be. No matter what crime this man was guilty of, we don't need any comparison except to know that we are guilty too. And what does this man do? Hanging on a cross next to the one, dying for his sins. What does he say with his precious words? He says, in summary, I'm guilty. I'm getting what I deserve. Jesus is innocent. He has done nothing wrong. Jesus is who he said he is. He is the Savior, the Messiah, the Deliverer. Jesus will defeat 
death somehow. And then finally he says, Jesus, will you save me? That is the simplicity of our response to the gospel. That is the simplicity of our response to the gospel. I'm guilty. Jesus is innocent. He is who he says he is. And I believe he will defeat sin and death somehow. And Jesus, will you take me with you? It really is that simple. It really is. Some people have noted that this particular criminal seems to have lacked certain qualifications. For instance, when was he baptized? As a baby or as an adult? When did he take communion last? Um, What denomination was his church? Was he charismatic? Was he Presbyterian? Was he Methodist or maybe Episcopalian? What about his family? Did he have a good dad? Did he have a good mom? Did he make his parents proud? What about his shortcomings? How much did he actually steal? Did he maybe at least tithe from the prophet? There is an apparent lack of qualifications, of things that we grow accustomed to looking for. And I will tell you, baptism is important. Communion is important. Church is important. Family is important. But with this man, we see the core of the gospel. The gospel in its simplest form right here. A criminal hanging on a cross next to Jesus acknowledges his sin, puts his faith in Jesus, and begs him for mercy. That's it. That's it. God, in his wisdom, requires nothing from you but to put your faith in Jesus and ask him to save you. So I encourage you, think of that one thing. In fact, close your eyes and think of that one thing that you can't let go of. That one thing that you keep trying to atone for. You keep trying to make up for. Maybe it's not one thing. Maybe it's a bunch of little things. That day outside of Jerusalem, a criminal was put to death for his one thing. But before he died, he asked Jesus to save him. And Jesus said these words that he could just as well have said to you. Truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Forgiveness, mercy, grace, all there for the asking. Jesus saves us by grace, through faith, not by works. The man on this third cross died for his crimes, but Jesus died for his sins. Rome could punish the man for his crimes against a mighty government, but Jesus took on his behalf the consequence of his sins against a mighty God. And on the other side of that cross was a place that Jesus called paradise, and that man is there today, not because of anything that that unnamed man did, but because of the grace of Jesus. 
Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The crowds mocked Jesus. The Romans fought over his clothes. The man on the first cross used his dying breath to curse Jesus. But the man on the third cross put his faith in Jesus, and the way Jesus responds to him should give us so much hope. I've never been convicted of a crime. I chose my words carefully. I've never been convicted of a crime. But if I had, the mercy of Jesus is greater than all my sin. And the same is true for you. As someone said in Jesus, you have never been more fully known and more deeply loved. I have known Jesus for most of my life. I can't think of a time when I wasn't at least aware of his presence. But even if I didn't, the grace of Jesus can overcome a lifetime of rejection. As long as you have breath, even if you have to fight for it, it is not too late to accept the forgiveness of Jesus. I have made my life about me more times than I can count. But even if I did count, the selflessness of Jesus is greater than every selfish thought, word, or action. And as I look to the cross and remember Jesus trading his life for mine, it teaches me and trains my heart to think of myself less. The same is true for all those who put their faith in Christ. But how do we know? How do we know that it's true? Because of this, Jesus did not stay on the cross. According to eyewitnesses and their publicly verified testimony, three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, proving his victory over sin and death. He appeared to the women at the tomb. He appeared then to the disciples and then to a crowd of over 500 people. And then he appeared to James and the rest of the apostles. And so this is the wisdom that we proclaim and that we celebrate is that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So I want you to understand what we are really doing here. This place is not a country club or a social event. This is not a popularity contest. This is not a place to keep the bad people out and get the good people in. This is a hospital proclaiming the cure for the walking dead. This is, like Billy said, a spiritual maternity ward where faith is born. This place is a mirror that shows us how we are loved in spite of our deepest doubts and fears. And so when you walk through these doors or the doors of any other church, you are admitting one thing, that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I deserve to be on that cross, but Jesus took my place, died and rose again, and that means everything to me. And when Jesus gets a hold of your heart, when you can declare that truth from the heart, something changes. In a podcast called Compelled, uh, they interviewed Evelyn Husband Thompson, and she was recalling memories of her life with her husband, uh, Rick. And after his first flight in space, 
aboard the Discovery, she said this, and some of you may have asked him this question. She said, people would ask Rick if he felt closer to the Lord in space, and he would say no. It's a different perspective, an incredible view of God's creation, a phenomenal view, an unfathomable view of God's creation. But the Lord's right here inside my heart. So he's the same as I'm sitting in my chair at home having a quiet time, just wanting to cry because I feel so close to him. There's no difference in that and in space. Years later, after he was killed, when the Columbia re-entered Earth's atmosphere, Evelyn reflected on the closeness of God through that time, saying, there is a light in the middle of the darkness. There is humor in the middle of sadness. There's joy. And he is with us. So friends, enjoy the day. Hunt for eggs. Have a great meal. Enjoy time with family and friends. But don't forget about the light and the darkness. Don't forget about the one who loves you enough to die for you. And don't forget what we are really doing here. Here in this place where we proclaim together that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are risen. We thank you that you have done what we could not do, that you bore the sin we could not bear, that you lived the life we could not live, and that as a free gift of grace, you offer that great exchange. You take our sin and you give us our righteousness so that we become the righteousness of God. Jesus, would you live in our hearts and would you live through us? Help us to be a people who proclaim your mighty name and your great love and your great mercy. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Would you please stand as we continue in worship?